continue to behold this wondrous mystery here in Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16. And in a moment, I will read verses 1 through verse 22. Judges 16, and I'll read from verse 1 through verse 22. And Father, as we continue to probe the depths of all that took place many centuries ago, uh, knowing that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, knowing that it is life and it is light, Father, that it was inspired and written, Lord, as every word of God is sure and perfect. So even as we look at a historical figure from many centuries ago, uh, there's so much to learn, and I pray that you would get me out of the way, that your word would go forward in power by your spirit, and you'd conform us to your image as we bow before it this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Judges 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute and went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then, we'll then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you eleven hundred pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with a pin, then I should become weak and be like any other man. 
So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have told, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza, bound him and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And may God bless the reading of his word this morning. Now, last week in chapter 15, verse 14, we saw that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson, and with God's help, he killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Then in verse 18, after the battle, Samson was literally going to die of thirst, and the text states in verse 18, he called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. If you remember, this is the very first time that Samson cried out to the only one who can save, to the only one who can deliver, to the only one who can provide great salvation. He is in great need, and he finally comes to God for help. And God meets him, God revives him, God replenishes him, and God restores him. And his, his restoration really parallels the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Because the words revive and return in verse 19 really have resurrection overtones. And clearly the author of the book of Judges, through the power of the Holy Spirit, at this point is affirming that Samson crying out to God, to quench his physical thirst is a picture of him also desiring to quench his spiritual thirst. And in that salvation, and in that strength, in that affirmation of faith, notice the last verse of chapter 15, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Now, we don't have a record of what took place 
for all of those 20 years, but apparently he was a faithful judge that we know had what we would call fatal flaws. And the one fatal flaw that plagued him all of his life was his repeated struggle with moral sin. I heard a pastor tell a story of a man that he had visited in the hospital who was in his 80s and on his deathbed. The man was, I don't know if he was in hospice, but he was ready to meet the Lord. And this pastor looked at the man and just in normal conversation, as you're ministering to someone who is ready to meet the Lord, just happened to ask him, uh, John or Bill, whatever his name was, hey, do you have any regrets? And the man looked right at the pastor and said, I have one regret. Over the course of my life, I never had victory over pornography. And the man who was, this pastor who was preaching paused, and he looked at his audience, he looked at the people he was preaching to, and he said, if this man struggling until his death, that's not good news for you young people. He's encouraging them to kill sin, to die to sin, to do it now, and by God's grace, beg and plead and fight and resist. Don't take moral sin to your grave. The story of Samson is a story of a man of faith who at various times in his life went his own way and did his own thing and paid a great price for his disobedience. I want to say that again. The story of Samson is the story of a man of faith who at various times in his life went his own way and he did his own thing, and he paid a very great price for his disobedience. Clearly, as you read the, the narrative, the one thing that we cannot say about God is that he is apathetic towards sin or that he's neutral about sin. What's coming through loud and clear is if you're a Christian and you do not love God and serve him faithfully, if you... If you as you wander and, and become part of the culture, as Samson did, as the nation of Israel did, and begin to worship the idols of the culture, as we reject him, reject his word, his commandments, if we go our own way, if we do our own thing, we will symbolically end our lives with our eyes gouged out in prison and suffering horrible humiliation. This entire text is telling us that God's judgment is sure. It's telling us don't trifle with God. It's telling us don't toy with sin. It's telling us that God judges his people. And we will discover it's telling us that God judges his church. The lesson is to the nation, but it's also to the individual. And we'll see that as we walk our way through what's taking place here. And as we've done in the past, we're going to walk through the narrative and, and try to save all the application toward the end. It begins, as I said, back in Philistine territory in the city of Gaza with Samson seeing a prostitute, and the text says she went, he went into her. Once the people of Gaza were aware that Samson's in town, they figured this was their chance. This is their big chance to capture him and kill him. They decide to wait until morning. Now, we don't know if Samson was aware of the ambush, or maybe he just had insomnia. But around midnight, the text says he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and he carried them all the way to Hebron. 
Now, from where he was to Hebron was a very short 38-mile walk. And I read one source that said the gate and the bars could have weighed up to 8,000 pounds. 8,000 pounds, 38-mile walk. And clearly, this is the narrative for at least two reasons. First, to show Samson's sin and his drift away from his previous acknowledgement of his need for God in chapter 15, and to just give another illustration of his amazing supernatural strength that by now the whole world knows about. And it sets us up for the most well-known part of Samson's life, and that's the story of Samson and Delilah and the game they played that was called Samson. The Philistines are coming. There's no record of a marriage here. All we know is in verse 4 that Samson loves her. We know in verse 5 and 6 that Delilah loves money. The Philistine lords promise 1,100 pieces of silver. There are five Philistine lords. Now, there are some who have worked out the math of this, figuring out how much silver was worth during that day, how much a shekel was worth, how much it all weighed. And the best that some could come up with is that each lord would give uh, Delilah a total of $18,000 from 2,800 years ago, or $90,000 total in order for them to catch and kill Samson. I suppose if you did the math and thought about inflation, we're talking about an awful lot of money. And it just shows you how desperate they were. And as you read through the narrative, it really does appear that there's a game going on between these two lovebirds. Samson loves Delilah. Delilah loves money. And you can imagine throughout the text, there's a longer conversation that takes place than what's going on here. When she asks the question about his strength in verse 6, she's probably very coy. In the beginning, she's even very polite. Samson, please, please tell me. He lies to her and says, probably in his own coy and flirty way, just, just tie me up with new bowstrings, and I'll just be weak like, like everybody else. Now, Delilah seems so sure of the answer here that according to verse 9, she has Philistines waiting in the inner chamber of her, of her home to pounce on Samson as soon as it's safe. He must have allowed her to tie him up. The whole time you can hear her saying, I mean, Samson, are you kidding me? Really, this is all I have to do is wrap you up with these seven bowstrings. You just carried an 8,000-pound gate 38 miles. wasn't just long ago you killed 1,000 people with a jawbone. I think, I think you even caught 300 foxes and tied their tails together with a, with a light in between. Oh, this is all that's needed? Oh, of course, honey, this is all that's needed, lovey. Th this is my kryptonite. I know kryptonite's not invented yet, but if it was invented, this is my kryptonite, bowstrings. They make me totally weak. So she ties him up and then gets ready to play the game. The Philistines are upon you, Samson, and the strings snap the way flax snaps in a fire. The Philistines are obviously hiding in her house. They're going to have to stay there because they want to have a surprise attack. So they're probably uh, a, a bit bored and a bit disturbed that nothing ever happened. She doesn't get paid, and Samson is having fun flirting with, toying with this woman that she, he is so enamored with. Now in verse 10, surely on a different night, Delilah is now upset because she feels Samson's mocking her. 
She still asks nicely. She says, please, how might you be bound? In verse 12, there's still men lying in ambush. And she's hoping, again, for a big payout. And the Philistines are hoping they can rid the world of Samson. This time, he says, you just have to use new ropes. Now, if she knew anything about his past, she would have known that the tribe of Judah tied him up with two ropes, and, and that didn't work, and this is not going to work either. He allows her to tie him up. By now, certainly she's a bit suspect, probably again says, really, Samson, what's different about these ropes than bowstrings? How is this going to make you weak? Uh, you aren't even being honest with me. You mocked me last time. Um, how do I know this is true? Well, just trust me on this one. The, these new ropes will neutralize my strength. And she does it again. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He snaps the rope off of his arms like thread. If you and I uh, decided to tie each other up with a piece of thread going around us, I think we could even break that as well. And Samson does that to these seven strong ropes. By now, Delilah is frustrated and angry and very distrustful. The next encounter... The Philistines are no longer waiting in ambush. They've wasted enough of their time. They won't be back unless Delilah is sure. Delilah, in verse 13, is no longer polite. Uh, she's now demanding. Until now, you've mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. The next answer Samson gives shows that he is now weakening. His hair, at this point, becomes part of the answer, but it's not the right answer, but it's getting closer to the answer. Samson tells her if somebody weaves the seven locks of his hair and fastens it with a pin, he'll be weak. Now, I said a few weeks ago that if a man never cut his hair for his entire life, uh, I'm told that it can grow half of his body length or up to three feet. So according to this verse, Samson has taken his very long hair and he somehow styled it and put it in seven locks, maybe to make it more manageable. And Delilah has to take those seven locks and weave these together, and the game continues. And she shouts again, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. He's lulled to sleep. His hair's woven together with a tight pin. When she shouts, he wakes up, pulls the pin, and again, all of his strength is still intact. He, he's just messing with her. He's just playing with her. And now she's really frustrated. If appealing won't work, if being nice won't work, if saying please won't work, then move to a new strategy. Now this strategy is in verse 16. And when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. $90,000 is on the line. The Philistines are getting very impatient. So do what you have to do, morning, noon, and night, day after day. You know how your kids do that to each other sometimes? They keep asking the same question over and over again. Me and my brother and sister did that all the time. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. Where's your strength? Where's your strength? Where's your strength? You can't even make the answer, and you're so frustrated, and they keep going and going and going. If you love me, you tell me. Will you quit asking me? Can't we just sit down and watch a quiet movie tonight? No, not unless you tell me. What's for dinner? Nothing till you tell me. Tell me, tell me. Where's your strength? Where's your strength? His soul is vexed to death. And in verse, 19, verse 17, he caves in. And he told her, 
all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Now at this point, there's a difference in what he has said compared to what he's been saying. And the difference is so significant, it's enough for her, according to verse 18, to tell the lords of the Philistines to come back. She's confident that Samson said everything, and they must have been confident too, because the text says they brought money in hand. In verse 19, she lulls him to sleep on her knees, calls a man to shave off his seven locks. And what a surprise it must have been that when he begins to wake up, she torments him. His strength has left him. She plays the here come the Philistines game again. And according to verse 20, and he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. You know, we can, we can laugh a little bit about the game they played. But by the time you get here, by the time you get to this part of the narrative, the weightiness and the solemnity is, is designed to overtake us. Because the games are over. Our hero is captured. His eyes are gouged out. And it honestly is a tragic end to a wasted life. And the reference to grinding at the mill in prison is a reference actually to women's work. Utterly humiliating our warrior. There are old paintings of Samson having being a giant muscle man who's pushing one of those those mill grinders that oxen usually push. That particular way to grind grain was not invented until centuries later. In this time period, in this century, the mill grinder was a hand grinder, and he sat all day long doing just the work of a slave girl as they humiliated him there in prison, surely mocking him and jeering him and sneering at him. That's basically the gist of the text. What can we glean from this? Why did God allow the writers of Holy Scripture through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit record this for us? And I think these are things that we dare not miss. There's probably more to say than this, but at least not less. I think that what this is saying is that sin and rebellion and doing what's right in our own eyes leads to blindness, it leads to God's absence, and it leads to God's judgment. Let me just begin by saying that Samson was actually blind before he was blind. He was spiritually blind before he was physically blind. We notice this by the continued enslavement to moral impurity and his inability to see that he had met Delilah before. Now, don't misunderstand me. He, he could see fine. In chapter 16, verse 1, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and went into her. And Samson had 20-20 vision. Remember, his vision hasn't changed much in 20 years. 
Back in chapter 14, verse 3, he wanted to marry the Philistine girl from Timnah for the sole reason, quote, that she is right in my eyes. A chapter later, he wanted to go back to the girl that he almost married, and he wanted to take her into the bedchamber. And then here he sees a prostitute and immediately pays for his gratification. He could see physically. Let me say that what he saw physically blinded him spiritually. Sin blinds us, doesn't it? Sin blinds us, but I think moral sin actually kills us. It's instruction all through the early chapters of Proverbs. Proverbs 9.18 tells the naive fool who's just like Samson, thinking with his glands, going to the house of the woman of folly. Solomon writes, but he does not know that the dead are there and her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Proverbs 7.22, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pieces it, pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it'll cost him his life. And don't miss the advice the Philistines gave to Delilah in chapter 16, verse 5. The lords of the Philistines came to her and said to her, seduce him and see what great strength and see where his great strength lies. See, Samson was able to be seduced because his heart was already drawn toward impurity. I think chapter 16, verse 1, gives three stages of what went on here. First, it says that Samson went to Gaza. He's immediately putting himself in a place of temptation. We saw before that he's drawn to women who are outside God's covenant family. This is where he, he met up with his first lover. Try, soon, soon, not, not quite lover, because he never got the chance to marry her. Once he's there, the next phrase says, he saw a prostitute. Well, the very fact that he saw a prostitute doesn't mean he has to visit her. It could have ended right there. Didn't have to go any further. But it did. And then it goes on to say that he went into her. His heart was drawn to impurity long before he left his house, placing himself in the way of temptation without even a fight, without even a battle against sin. What a contrast we have between Samson and Joseph, who when Potiphar's wife grabs him and says, lie with me, he refused by telling her this would be a great wickedness and a sin against God. He refused to be with her. You see, Samson was easy prey. Because he had no concern for God, no concern for his glory, no concern for sin. And his heart was drawn long before the encounter. The scripture doesn't record the seduction part of Delilah's plot. But clearly there's far more going on than the word of God very tastefully puts forth. Men, brothers in Christ. We live in a world where we are, there's an attempt to seduce us every day of every minute of our whole lives, and it's not any more necessary by a live person. If you own a phone and it's in your hand and you're in front of a screen 
I guarantee you're being called to be unfaithful. You're being called to be impure. You're being called to be immoral. And if you're losing the battle of pornography, you're already blind. If you don't die to it, if you don't kill it, if you don't flee from it, it will kill you. Moral sin eventually killed Samson. It caused David to lose part of his kingdom and destroyed part of his family. It took Samson's heart away from the Lord. And let me just say that because it's here in front of us, if you're a slave to this and you need help, please get in touch with me. You may need brothers in Christ around you to, for you to walk in it. God's given you the grace to say, no to sin and yes to righteousness, but sometimes it takes some others to come alongside you. It's his blindness also that made it so he didn't learn his lessons. Don't, don't you feel like getting into the story and just screaming at Samson? I mean, Samson, don't you remember that the Philistines plowed with your heifer? Don't you remember that they got another woman to and they manipulated she manipulated you to find out the answer you've been down this path before in chapter 14 verse 17 she presses hard she begs him and eventually samson gave up the answer samson you've been here before don't you see i wonder how many times you may have been down the same path struggling with the same sin and continuing to, to make the same mistakes. We have to be reminded that God has given us his spirit and his power, as I said, to say yes to him and no to unrighteousness. And part of growing isn't that we're going to be perfect, but over time we're putting away the sins that easily beset us or entangle us, and we're running the race with endurance that sets before us. It is a slow process. It's a lifelong process, but we should be growing. I hope we all are. Samson is not. This is here to show us that sin blinds us, which leads to greater blindness. And secondly, it leads also to the absence of God's presence. I think verse 20 is, is, is a tragic verse, one of the most tragic in Scripture. But he did not know the Lord had left him. Just for a moment, turn over to 1 Samuel 4. 1 Samuel 4. There's a word here. You may, not, you may have heard the word used, but not in the context. In 1 Samuel 4, the nation of Israel had believed that the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, was, was kind of a good luck charm. They thought that this Ark of the Covenant, if they brought it into the battle, would help them defeat the Philistines. As it turns out, it didn't work. You wouldn't expect it to work. It wasn't meant for that, but they thought it was because they were completely away from the Lord. They're defeated. 30,000 Israelites die. Eli is the priest, and his two sons died. The ark was captured. And all of this caused Eli's daughter-in-law to go into what looks like early labor. And I just want to begin reading in 1 Samuel 4, verse 20. About the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, 
the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. That, that, that word Ichabod, if you've never heard it before, is used to, to describe a place where God's presence is gone. The glory of God has departed. In this case, the ark the Philistines had captured was symbolic of God's presence and now was no longer with the nation of Israel. This is exactly what's going on in Samson's life. God and his glory are gone. He did not know that the Lord had left him. Bad enough for the glory to part. But even worse, you don't know it's gone. Samson had been a Nazarite from the time that, uh, that he was, before he was born. He violated his Nazarite vow when he, when he went to the vineyards in Timnah in chapter 14. He violated the vow when he took the uh, honey out of the dead carcass of the lion. He violated his vow when he used the dead donkey's jawbone as a weapon. He violated his covenant with God when he married, tried to marry women outside the covenant family. And all of these, all of these sins, God never left Samson. He could have, but for reasons that only God knows, he didn't leave him even though Samson left him. But here, enough is enough. And after Samson finally disregarded the very last part of the Nazarite vow by having his hair cut, God leaves Samson and he doesn't even know it. And his spiritual blindness causes him to be unaware that God is no longer with him. Now, we don't want to overapply this and assume that he's talking here about losing his salvation. That's another subject. That's another sermon. That's something else to talk about. He's not talking here about Samson losing his salvation. The Lord is leaving him, leaving him powerless. He's losing his usefulness, losing the gift of his strength, losing his calling. And we can lose all of these things as well. When he got up without God's presence, he had no strength. The Philistines finally subdued him. I'll never forget a story a friend told me when I was in Bible. When I, he was a Bible college student, and so was I. He had an assignment. He was supposed to interview a pastor and just talk to the pastor about ministry, about life, about church growth, about methodology. And he happened, obviously, to interview uh, his pastor, which happened to be my pastor. The church that we both attended, there was a time period in California where there was tremendous exponential growth. I mean, if you had a, a graph, it would literally be going up and up and up, statistically growing very rapidly. When I was there, they had um, four morning services, uh, about 1,000 people each, had a high school group of 400, a college group of 200, two evening services, both packed. Um, and yet, in the last few years, statistically, it, it had totally flatlined. The thing had gone up straight, and now it was almost at an absolute flat line. No growth at all. And my friend said, he remembers the pastor quietly saying, hmm, maybe it's me. It wasn't long after that, when it was discovered, 
that this pastor had been unfaithful, I think, with the church organists for the last few years, during those stagnant years. His sin affected him. It affected his family. It surely affected the church. Now, he seemed to possibly be aware that God had left him. But our sin causes us to lose his presence. Sometimes we're the last to know. Again, I'm not talking about losing your salvation. But we lose our fellowship and we lose our closeness and we lose our relationship and we lose our usefulness and we lose our gifting and we lose our calling. This is not just for those in the ministry. Moms, ladies, the most important thing that you can be and do for your husband, your family, or for your church is to walk faithfully in obedience. Dads, fathers, men, the most important thing we can do for our wife, our children, our church, those who know us, is to walk in faithful obedience. All of us, the most important thing we can do is to live for God in his glory. As 1 John tells us to walk in the light as he is in the light. So we have fellowship with one another, which leads us really to our last point. Because thirdly and lastly, this passage is teaching us that God's judgment is sure upon the, those who are in sin. Up until now, we've seen God deliver when they cried out of their misery. Up until now, we've seen God deliver, remember, even when they didn't cry out. We've seen his compassion, God's compassion for people is so great that he delivers his people even when they're not asking. And I've attempted to emphasize over and over in this book that what a blessing it is that God gives us what we don't deserve. And he doesn't give us what we do deserve. When the nation first began to go their own way, We know from Scripture that God had every right, if he chose to, to bring all the consequences that he promised would come upon them if they forgot him, if they worshiped false gods, if they married outside of Israel. And I've said a number of times, God is long-suffering and God is patient. And what the writer of the book here is saying, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the record of the life of Samson, is that the day will come. When God will say, enough is enough. The life of Samson teaches us that there is an end to God's long-suffering. There is an end to God's forbearance. I have a quote in your bulletin by R.C. Sproul that I think is very helpful. The other quote by Ralph Davis is just for your benefit. I'm not going to read it. R.C. Sproul made this great comment. He says, God's grace is not infinite. God is infinite and God is gracious. We experience the grace of an infinite God, but grace is not infinite. God sets limits to his patience and forbearance. He warns us over and over again that someday the axe will fall and his judgment will be poured out. I think in hindsight, many of my sermon titles in Judges, I've attempted to capture, remember the the pattern we've talked about throughout the entire book. Israel sins, God sees God sells them into slavery, and then they cry out, and then God saves. We said that over and over again. Israel sins, God sees, God sells them into slavery, and then God saves. 
And my exhortation has been, what a great long-suffering God we serve who saves those even when we don't cry out. And for 16 chapters and the better part of 250 years of history in the book of Judges, the pattern is now changing. Now the pattern is going to be Israel sins, God sees, God sells, and God judges. As I mentioned earlier, Samson's life is designed to parallel the nation of Israel. In chapter 13 through 15, Samuel sins like Israel sins. God delivers Samson like God delivers the nation. Now we're in chapter 16. Samuel sins and Israel sins. God judges Samson. God will judge the nation. This is a warning to the nation that very soon enough will be enough. There's a limit to God's forbearance. I just want to pause here and say that we have to be really careful that we keep the application where it's meant to be. Do not make the immediate jump to apply this to the United States. I have to remind you that the book of Judges is written to God's people, therefore applied to God's church. The United States is not God's people, and we have never been. The United States is not the church. We're just a nation. We're a nation like Australia. We're a nation like England. We're a nation like Ecuador. So we want to be really careful to see this text is written and applied to his people, his followers. And we cannot forget that judgment always starts in the household of God. I mean, don't we see this in the book of Revelation? Uh, Turn to Revelation chapter 2 for a moment. We certainly can't read all of the things the Spirit of God told the Apostle John to write down about the seven churches. But we do know that these are real churches in the first century, and like all churches, they had a fair share of problems and issues. We'll just look at one of them. We'll look at the church at Ephesus, and I'll start reading from verse 5 of chapter 2. We'll just pick it up actually in the middle of verse 4 of chapter 2. Where John writes, but I have this against you. This is the Lord Jesus talking. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The removal of the lampstand was a removal of the church. And the whole point of all seven of those churches is that God judges his people. God judges his churches. God is gracious. He's forbearing, but his grace is not infinite. There is a time when God says enough is enough. Apparently the people in this church were gathering Sunday by Sunday, even though they had abandoned their first love that they had, that they had at first. Yet they're still gathering. It gives the idea that they're going through the motions They're showing up for church, and there's no life, no zeal, no love for singing, no love for preaching, no love for one another, no love for the gospel, no love for his word, no love for the lost, no love for prayer, and no real desire to be ambassadors for Christ. I mean, it would would be communicated here that Sunday was not the Lord's day. It was just a once or twice twice a month box to check. I I did my duty. You're not there because you love to be there. You did there because you checked your box. 
It's kind of like when your anniversary comes with your wife and you're buying a card and maybe getting a gift or going to dinner because you have to, not because you want to. It's you no longer get misty eyed. You've forgotten what it was like when you first were married, where you just couldn't believe that she actually picked you. After 40 years, you should be more amazed than you were in the beginning, shouldn't you? There's no more love, no more please, no more thank you, no more I appreciate you, no joy, no conversation. You're still married, but you've abandoned the love you had at first. I hope that's not you. And, and, and since they were to repent and do the works they did at first, it sounds like whatever they were doing when they first came to Christ, they're no longer doing those things either. They lost their love and they lost their, their duties. Whether that means they, they used to be involved in the lives of others and now they're not. They used to love God's word, now they don't. They used to love prayer, and now they don't. Do you remember what it was like when you first became a believer? Do you remember hungering and thirsting for God and his word and his people? Do you, do you remember what it was like when you first fell in love with Jesus? Are you a hungry Christian? Do you love the pure milk of the word like a nursing baby loves the milk of her mother? Do you love God's people imperfect as we are? And do you want to get to know others in the body of Christ because we're family? Are you making an effort to do this so you can serve them and bear their burdens and know who they are? Do you love to sing his praises? Do you love him the way you loved him when you first became a Christian? Or, or have you lost your first love? I can't help but think and ask the question, how does this apply to Grace Fellowship corporately? Are we in danger of having our candlestick removed because we've lost our first love? I mean, what, what do we need to repent of? I, I'm, I still feel like I'm fairly new here, three years almost. But a church that's 127 years old, 16 or 17 pastors, 47 years of a school surely has had periods of faithfulness. And yet some of our legacies involved with church splits and moral sins and angry participants and congregational meetings and broken relationships and individuals who have sinned against one another. Maybe they made right. Some of them have maybe. I wonder what Jesus would tell us to repent of, repent of if he spoke to us the way he spoke to those at Ephesus, have we lost our first love? Beloved, the tragedy of Samson is the tragedy of any and all believers who have followed his pattern of sin and blindness and who, because of sin, lose the presence and the power of God and churches become totally ineffective. That's why you can write Ichabod over them. God is long-suffering God is patient. God also knows when enough is enough and he brings his judgment. He removes his candlesticks and his glory departs. I pray this won't be you. I pray this won't be us. Now, it's really too bad I have to stop here. I hate to stop at this moment. Even in these adverse circumstances, in the text, 
God still hears the cries of the people who come to him for grace. And we'll see that next week in the life of Samson. Did you notice verse 22? Did you notice verse 22? But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. That's a very small promise, but it has a very big voice. There's no magic in his hair. The power is in the God who causes hair to grow. And even in this chapter that shows God's judgment upon his servant, there's always the hope of renewal. Always the hope of of restoration and always the hope of God's presence returning as we repent and trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have been walking through the book of Judges and as we have had this particular scripture set before us, Lord, showing the the consequences of the sin and and the consequences really are horrible. And Lord, it's meant for us to to see this and to grieve and to mourn. And it's meant for us to examine ourselves. Lord, it's meant for us to look and see, Father, if there's areas in my life where I'm opening the doors for impurity, if there's areas in my life where I'm opening the doors for your judgment. And I just pray that we wouldn't have a casual view of holiness and a casual view of sin. We ask that you would free us from our impurity. We ask, Father, that you would help us to love you more. And, Father, we pray that you give us the grace to set aside every sin that entangles us. And how thankful we are, Father, how thankful we are that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. We're so thankful that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're so thankful that as we gather here together as broken, frail people, that that there's a Savior, Lord, who has died for us. There's a Savior who has redeemed us. There's a Savior, Father, who we can go to and run to and bring all of our sin before, Father. And I pray that if there's anyone here struggling this morning, they would leave here, Lord, not in the the dumps, Lord, of, of their sin, but in the hope of victory through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In Christ's name we pray.